Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to our post-film discussion. Is With everyone okay? <coughs> yeah, first off. <laughs> uh, this was obviously um, an incredibly powerful film. I think it's incredibly important that we've been able to show it here. What do you think of it? Well, this is my fourth time watching it, uh, and it's I still find it emotionally devastating. Um, but the first time I watched it, which was... This film has had darkness around it from the beginning because on the day that it premiered in Cannes, the author of its, the, the book that is very, very loosely adapted from Martin Amis, he died. Um, and that dark energy has only intensified. But the, to, the experience of watching it was like, it's really unusual. You know, I've been a film journalist for over 10 years and I've watched a lot of films and it's very rare that I'm watching something and I don't even know what I'm watching but I like go with it because the filmmaking is so assured and I'm feeling ways but I don't know what I'm feeling <laughs> I know it's powerful but it just kind of like yeah it, it just sort of the first time I watched it I was so disturbed simultaneously on a craft level awestruck because it was totally original uh, and then afterwards <laughs> I just like m me and my editor we walked out of it just in silence uh for and um and he just said, I think that was the most disturbing film I ever saw. Uh, and then, yeah, so that that was the first time I watched it. And um, subsequent watches, I've been able to, like, kind of pay more attention to the way it has been crafted and how it's created this haunting affect. Because, of course, you know, you never go on the other side of the wall. You never see what is being done to the Jewish people in Auschwitz, but you feel it so intensely. And I've just been admiring it these subsequent times how he's managed to kind of feed in that empathy for the people that you never see i guess with that empathy you're you're finding it through the way in which he's done it i mean uh, the way they uh, did it was quite similar to that of under the skin um which was uh, jonathan glazer's last piece where essentially he puts up hidden cameras the actors don't know where the cameras are and it's pretty loose in terms of its improv and it's pretty loose in terms of its structure I was wondering, what did you make of that choice of going for a much more improvisational approach than just a, a, quite as strict as uh, other films have done in this subject matter? Well, to be clear, the script is not improvised. No, no. Um, but the camera setup in this, um, I, I actually, I've got a few quotes on my phone. And yeah. I think this one is like quite telling from Jonathan Glazer because what he did is he set up 10 cameras um, on the... So they, they filmed in in Auschwitz, not in the site of the original house. And it needs to be said in case anyone doesn't realise that, you know, this is based on the recorded fact. This is exactly where the Hoss family lived on the other side of Auschwitz. Um, and they they did go to the site of the original house. They couldn't use it, but they made extensive notes and then they kind of recreate the house elsewhere, elsewhere in, in, you know, the, the Polish city where uh, Auschwitz was. Mm. Um, and he, you know, he didn't want to make this film um, in the sense that he was very scared and daunted by the subject matter. And he thought very carefully about how he could make this film centering that family without, you know, like kind of glamorizing them because cinema is such a glamorous medium. Uh, and so, yeah, he had this kind of like 10 camera setup around the house and the garden and no one was on set. If there's like a slightly alien feel to events, like there's no there's no director there, there's no camera operator there, there's no one with lights. The actors are just on set, uh, and this is what um, 
yet Glazer said about that choice he said basically um what did he say about that choice (laughs) he said yeah so the goal was not to fetishize them not to empower them not to glamorize them with the conventions of filmmaking but rather sit back and watch them somehow that felt to me like the only way I could do it um and so yeah I, I think he he achieves that goal you know you're watching them usually um, because because of the intimacy of cinema, if you would spend that long t- that long with a family, you would start to root for them. You get curious about them. You get involved in their kind of like, you know, their marital dramas. But there's this kind of eerie detachment that. So even though he's not caricaturing them at all, mm-hmm. and you know, a lot of the lines of dialogue are, are, were overheard by witnesses, um, and is directly from the historical record. He's not caricaturing them, but he's not glamorizing them. And there's this very strange feeling, and I think that's a lot of the, that's comes through in the way that, yeah, like as you said, the kind of camera setup. Uh, and then, of c- obviously, we can't talk about this film without talking about that very raw, vivid sound design from mm. Johnny Byrne and um, Mika Livy, also with her music, uh, with their music, rather. My apologies. Um, I'd love to know your thoughts on the use of soundscape because uh, there has been. I mean, I remember when I watched Son of Soul, for instance, which I've, there are problems with that film, but in the same way they use what you can't see. And I think the use of sound in this film in particular is just, it just takes you away from it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and real human screens were used in the final part of the score. Um, yeah, I, I think it's so important. Uh, I think it's, it, you know, it fills in, it's part of the thing that fills in the humanity of the victims, uh, which is something that sort of has to be present for the film to work. Um, and so Johnny Byrne, the sound designer, he says that they, th- the way that they talked about this film was there were two different films. There was the one you could see and there was the one you can hear. And um, they, w- w- for the sound library, you know, th- this w- it was also, th- they kind of did this deep historical research listing all the sounds you would have heard down to the type of guns that the Nazis were using and man- just kind of com- compiled a sound library. Um, and then just, they they kind of experimented with sort of like the different volume levels at which they could have it. And I think initially they said they were being quite meek and then they were like, no, 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 it, need- <laughs> it needs to be louder. And again, I think that contributes to that discordant atmosphere where you're like, like, why aren't they reacting? Like, why aren't they horrified? Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, that's the sound design, which I think is absolutely extraordinary. But then what Mika Levy has contributed is, is something else entirely. You know, that it's like 14 minutes total, their score. Mm-hmm. But every time it's used in the intro, in the outro, in that moment when the ski- screen grows red and in those kind of black and white night vision sections, suddenly it's, it's like... Because you're almost like, you're almost getting as numbed as that family. I mean, you can, you're not numbed. You're kind of horrified. But then suddenly it's like, no, like, I think they're very viscerally emotional. And they kind of like, they remind you, they remind you of where you are and what's happening. Yeah, Mika's music, because, I mean, it it sort of feels like it it just jumps you back in. Because you've become, I, I felt within myself when I was sitting down watching this family, you sort of lean back into it after a couple of scenes. You were just like, okay, and now I'm sat back into my side, but only for me to just completely blast you away with this. Uh, uh, just a re- quant- constant reminder of, hang on a minute, this is what you're actually seeing here, which is a, a credit to the music. Um, and especially for someone like Mika, who 
for most of the films that she's scored, it's a prominent part of the film, whilst with this is just incredibly sparse, would you say? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I guess my, my next question, I, th I mean, it, I keep on talking about how important this film is. Um, and obviously, in terms of how we look at genocide, I mean, we've got um, war in Europe and um, obviously uh, horrendous uh, things that are happening in the Middle East. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on with Hazlitt? Yes. So this is a very delicate thing to talk about. Um, but basically, uh, this is a piece that I, I've been working on called Delving into the Fascist State of Mind. Um, and I've spoken to a legendary psychoanalyst called Christopher Bolas to kind of characterize what it is about the fascist state of mind in the zone of interest, but also in like Israel national policy at the moment. Um, and I think I've followed the film's lead in so far as I think it's very easy and very tempting for us to think about people who commit genocide or who are complicit in genocide as kind of like evil. Um, and you think, oh no, like that could never be me. That could never be anyone I know. And even like the way, the kind of role that Nazis have come to to take in cinema is a bit of a caricature of evil. You know, you have like Indiana Jones being like Nazis. I hate those guys. But this depiction, you know, people in their reviews have talked a lot about Hannah Arendt's the banality of evil. But I think it's even more nuanced than that. Um, and so I, yeah, as 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 a as a kind of like way into this area I also want to read a few quotes that are just kind of about what I have come to understand as like the core psychological elements behind fascism um so yeah this this is he's a psychoanalyst called Christopher Bolas and he is a living legend he's brilliant um and he he has we spoke twice once before he saw this film and then once afterwards um and he he thinks the film is genius um, and he, he's talked about something called, well, splitting, which is like, it, it's like kind of what it sounds like. And it, 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 something that's part of this is something like a negative hallucination. So you would have a positive hallucination where you would see something that isn't there. A negative hallucination is when you don't see something that is there. Um, and this is, this is something, yeah, I mean, this is, this is sort of, a, this is how you are able, this is how people are able to dehumanize others. They see them, but they don't see them. Mm -hmm. And we see that in the film. And uh, we see that with the way that Western politicians uh, sort of manage to ab absolutely negate the violence being visited on the people of Palestine, literally as we speak. Mm -hmm. So that's splitting and that's negative hallucination. Um, there's also something called, um, intellectual genocide which I think this film is interesting in that respect because this is the work of a filmmaker he very much trusts his audience uh you know to kind of like bring the knowledge he said he didn't want to go on the other side of the wall we know those images are the worst images we've ever, see we've ever seen and we don't want to see them so you don't see intellectual genocide in this film per se but intellectual genocide is like is when uh, someone dehumanizes uh, a group through language and if they have a large platform they are dehumanizing that group in the audience uh, who is listening to them um, and that's a that's a core component and that's always a precursor to physical genocide is intellectual genocide mm -hmm. um, and then finally on a slightly more hopeful note he 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 said that 
uh, like a huge he said well he he says that we have lost our conscience as in in the in the world but he says that what this is as a result of is the fact is there's kind of like two modes of being there's like a regressive psychological mode of being um and then there's like higher level functioning and higher level functioning is when you have access to empathy you have access to reason and crucially you have access to your conscience um when you feel threatened you regress and this is how people are actually quite easily able to kill and dehumanize each other because the moment you're threatened you will regress unless you've cultivated a higher level functioning which is it's actually imperative upon humanity to do so um and yeah and so he basically said that like the way forward for humanity um at this appalling moment that we find ourselves in is to first of all never visit intellectual genocide upon anyone even your adversary do not detoxify people do not toxify people um and second of all if if you're speaking to someone uh, even someone you like and they're doing that it's kind of incumbent upon us as humans to challenge it Mm -hmm. um and to appeal to the same part of other people's personalities because he says there's always a same part uh but some people just kind of like get a free ride with their regression um so yeah i'm not sure if i answered your question i feel like i just kind of gave a small speech no 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 that's that certainly answered my question um, okay. i think what well, I, I before i hand over to uh, some audience members if you do have any thoughts or questions please put your hand up um we've got a microphone to hear you so if you do have any questions please put your hand up um but one last question i wanted to ask you is that coda and what you're talking about there with um this idea of splitting when we see Rudolf Hoss um, walking down the stairs, we see him retching. And I wonder if that, in the way I saw it, I saw it as it was a uh, less about uh, what we know of Auschwitz as it is today, but uh, rather he seeing um, the destruction of everything that he sort of built up in that sense, how history will remember it, not as a as what it is which was the greatest um evil that has ever been committed in the world but rather um not an achievement for the germans in that regard that's really interesting and and i should probably say you know i think the kind of the the beauty and the glory of art is that like there's not a definitive interpretation um and i like i hadn't thought of that before and that's really interesting um i interpret it a different way which is that you know he's 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 like intellectually repressed his conscience but his body knows what he's done Mm. and it's coming up out of him and he'll never own it you know he'll never make the connection but like his body knows and that's just how i interpret it and that's i mean all interpretations are valid fantastic Mm. um does anyone in the audience have any questions um so throughout a lot of it it seems like they, um, as as you mentioned, they like they compartmentalize. They don't really address what's over the fence. Um, so it's quite bureaucratic type of fascism. And then at times it seems like they enjoy it. Like when the wife is being cruel to the maid, and when the kid is putting his brother in the frozen greenhouse. Um, it feels like they're leaning into that side of thing. Like maybe they do understand what they're doing and they do get it. Um, so yeah, just interested uh, what you guys made of that. I'll let you, I'll, I'll let you start. <laughs> yeah, I, I think they know full well what they're doing. It, it's more that most of the time 
they're not interested in what they're doing. Um, you know, Hedvig's very concerned about the possibility of having to, to leave her dream house. That's like a genuine preoccupation. I mean, that comes kind of late on the film. Um, so yeah, I, 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 think, I think you're right. Like maybe it, when I say negative hallucination, I mean, I don't mean that it's like not computed. It's mean, I just mean that most of the time they block it out because they're not interested. But I do think, I do think they know, they know it's there and they're kind of, they're okay with that. I, I agree. Um, what I would also say, um, if we're looking at the um, in history of uh, Hedwig Hoss, so she ended up uh, getting annexed to, I think it was Canada or New York. I'm, I'm not too, qu I'm not quite sure, but she ended up living to the age of uh, 89 years of age. Um, Rudolf Hoss was uh, subsequently uh, about two years after what we see in the events of the zone of interest he was later hung after the nuremberg trials um in the middle of auschwitz um i think she is very much complicit in this film and i think there is it, it's quite interesting that jonathan glazer has shown rudolf hoss as a very normal man as in there's no sort of um there's no psychotic behaviour that we usually see. I mean, uh, Schindler's List is a perfect example of the way in which Guth uh, was um, portrayed. And there's no psych. It's not a psychotic man. He's not uh, presented as a very, you know, evil man. He's presented as a very, very normal man in comparison to his wife Hedwig, which you sort of see the complete opposite, which really interests me when I first saw this, and then when I saw it a second time, you just you sort of see how quite how evil she is just in the way she parents the way she is the way she talks and one of the scenes where the uh, maid is uh, pouring the shot glass for um rudolf hoster's arrival for his birthday you can see in, into the corner what sandra huller has done is is fantastic it is a perfect example of listening to your fellow actors where you can just see her looking constantly surveying constantly surveying each and every person that walks in and it's quite it, it's so unsettling uh but yeah uh is is there any more questions we've got we get just at the yeah. oh slight tech issues oh give us one second i think we we can probably hear yeah, it, right? we can probably hear you man yeah yeah Oh, don't don't worry. We can probably hear. Can I ask, um, what what did you make of the way the psychology of the horses was presented, um, and how, like, in terms of your personal understanding of the psychology that goes alongside with genocide? I mean, they're both incredibly sensitive actors, and Sandra Hula had sworn that she would never play a Nazi. I mean, if you watch the press conferences, she pr it's probably one of the first things she said. And one thing she just detail she decided on for her characterization was it, you know, she would always be moving because like you have to stop to think and she's an unthinking being and she never stops. She's always doing something. And he's a bit different and I haven't quite figured out how. So, something that I noticed about him though was his um, attraction to animals and nature. 
it's quite interesting the way he he, he loved he, the horse is the last person that he says goodbye to <laughs> the um the fact that he constantly goes swimming and that he makes that telephone call um towards the beginning saying no guards are allowed to pick the lilacs that was the most upset we got him. Yeah. It wasn't over the picking of the lilac bushes. Absolutely fine with like figuring out how to expedite the like gassing of like hundreds of thousands of Jewish people. But pick his lilac bushes. Oh my God, the hell, man. <laughs> Man's got to pay. But um, it, then you look at the normality of those meetings as well. When they're, they're sat around basically constructing the vehicle of death. And the, the the tone of which they use it, it's just it's absolutely remarkable of how, the, and I understand the the sort of links between um, the banality of evil, but I think it goes so much further than that in that way. Yeah, well, I think I do reject the term evil now because I I mm. think it's a it's a it's a distancing word, yeah. um, and this is maybe something we haven't touched on that I think is actually probably really integral to the film's atmosphere. Um, which is just the Herculean amount of research that that went into it. Um, you know, the, the the phone calls that we see Rudolf Hoss placing, I think they're verbatim. Mm. When Hedvig's mask slips, when she shouts at the maid and she says, I could have your ashes, my husband could have your ashes scattered over the field of Babiche. Uh, someone in the house overheard her saying that. So it, I think it, like, it, there are moments in the film where any other filmmaker or if, or if this filmmaker had not taken so long, it they would feel like caricatures uh, rather than real people. Uh, but they never quite do. And it has this ring of truth because it is true. A lot of it is just, I mean, so such lengths have gone to, have been gone to to ensure that it, what you see does feel like truth. And it's also the case in those, in those meetings that you mentioned and, you know, like... There are so many films about Nazis and you, you can almost s- sort of see like the actor like doing their Nazi thing. And these are not, they're, no one is doing, everyone's, that's stripped away. Yeah. These are people saying things, real people saying things that real people did say. And I, it has, as you were saying before, and it has even sometimes like a documentary feel- feeling. Yeah, it, but precisely. I, th- I think we had a gentleman that I wanted yes, to ask a question. Yeah. Well, uh, other things. At first, when I I've not seen the film before, so when I began to see the the, the 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 scene in the garden and so on, I wonder whether they're moving into a sort of Stockholm syndrome here that they were going to be, you know, perfectly normal people who actually were in a difficult position or something, and and it it didn't do that at all. And there was no anxiety, you know, there was no anxiety about it. But just two small cinematic things. Um, the dog. Mm. You know, the dog has such an important part in this film. Don't you think? In the sense of almost like a sort of commentator on the action and uh, a little bit of sort of light relief almost, but which makes the rest of the action more intense. And I thought the dog was great. And, uh, and the second thing was the train. Mm. You know, right at the end, the train that steams across. You don't even see, th- all you see is the smoke from the train moving across the screen. And I thought that's absolutely brilliant way of, because we all know the images, it relates to something we've seen so often, and never s- it never stops being appalling and, and so on. 
and I thought that was such a a clever touch. You 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 make the point, but in a very quick, subtle way, but it's made very effectively. At what point in the film did you realise it wasn't a Stockholm Syndrome situation? That's, I can't sort of pinpoint it, but, you know, when it starts at the beginning and, you know, and particularly when he is sort of swimming with the children in the river and all, the, and she's got this garden thing going on and, 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 and party and so on, you think these are actually perfectly normal people, or they could be perfectly normal people, and it would have been possible for a different sort of film perhaps to have just you know made that that point but what was what it clearly didn't i mean it very effectively demolish that uh, perspective i thought yeah it's interesting what you said about the dog <laughs> um cuz I, I i i get where you're coming from actually cuz <laughs> like after the third watch um whilst i don't think the dog plays quite as a significant part in my mind but i do see that in terms of especially in that garden scene where the dog is trying to eat the picnic table. And obviously there are moments where you can just completely and utterly relate, which is that sort of sitting down the cinema seat that you, you get that moment of, I'm becoming too comfortable with this. Uh, and with the dog as well going, and you hear the barking of the other dogs over the wall nearly throughout the whole entire film. So it's no surprise to see the link between that happening versus the events that later happen with the mother as well um, and how she notices quite a lot more than we give her credit for yeah, mm. um, yeah are there any other questions oh, we've got one person at the back yep. um, um, if you don't mind and I, um, sorry I, I don't know whether this is being flat on I'm stepping on your toes uh, but we are recording this Q&A for a podcast Yes. So, uh, <laughs> please do come and see us if you don't want your voice to be included. That's absolutely fine. I don't want mine included. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> uh, thanks. I think um, you just touched on it there. I just wanted to ask what you made of the character of the, the mother and her departure and obviously the letter that we don't see. Um, I just thought she's a interesting and very separate character from the rest of the characters you see in the film. Yeah, she because she presents so unsympathetically when you first meet her, you know, kind of like chuckling about Esther Silberman being over the other side of the wall and you're like, wow, what a piece of work. Um, but then, yeah, as you say, she sort of subverts that. Um, I think there is a motif in this film of like seeing and not seeing and, you know, you have even the host children some of them they come out of bed and they just watch out the window and and you know and i think maybe that just kind of has to do with yes like whoever you are you have a conscience and it like maybe there's just a certain point where like you can't look away so what do you think I agree. I think it's about it, it's exactly what you've just said. I mean, with the mother's situation, you've got a character there that has is it when exactly when you first meet her, you're thinking, "Oh my Christ, almost she sounds like every other mum in a marriage." You know, it, it's uh, she presents herself. She's she's a lot. She fills up the space um, when she's on the screen. 
it's an interesting one, the mother. I'm really because I'm every time that I watch it, I find something new with her character. But the thing that I found today was when we see that garden scene, which has been seen on all the trailers. And if you notice it, and the next time you watch it, if you uh, <laughs> obviously don't watch it for a while, you know, get, let this sink in. But what I've noticed was that the mother looked at the wall more than she did the flowers in the garden scene. Um, and not only that, whilst she does not recognise it as such, I think the seed is it, the seed starts as soon as she walks out onto the terrace um, and into the garden. Um, and I think that's such a clever um, characterise it. And I think that's such a clever way of um, presenting her character um, through the uh, through her acting. I think. Um, uh, and yes, ex exactly what you're saying about um, you know. It, 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 she has to have some form of hope and there's uh, uh, during such a bleak film there are so many moments where you're thinking christ just give me some bit of hope and i think that probably puts it into perspective of the the apple picking scene uh that's probably the only moments of hope that you can really find in this film um, of, of course the coda as well but what do you think of that apple picking scene I mean, that's the Polish resistance. Uh, and yeah. when I first watched it, I had no idea what it was. Yeah, but Now I, I have come to feel that it is the Polish resistance. Um, and again, that's like, even in, the, even in the depths of hell, there are people there willing to bear witness to that hell or where everyone else is looking away. Um, and so I find that very moving. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, how much, uh, how are we doing for time? We've got two minutes to go couple more minutes uh if anyone else uh yep yeah it, it's just a quick one actually um you mentioned it, a bit of a surprise to me to see martin amos's name he's one of my uh favorite writers and uh, i read a book that he did about um nazi germany many years ago but um you mentioned it's very loosely based on this um it's quite interesting because the film is like the, the mention is so visual with the the wall and you know what you see so how does how does the novel compare What's how's it drawn to? Do you know? Well, I confess I haven't read it, but um, it is. I know that it's very loose because the Martin Amis book is a fictionalized version of the horses. It's a couple called Paul and Hannah Dole, and there's a proper story to it. There's like a love triangle, um, and so I think like Jonathan Glazer has wanted to make a film about the Holocaust for a long while. And when he read the book, it sparked his imagination. But then he started researching the real horses, you know, that the Martin Amos characters were based upon. And then he was up, up, like up and away. So uh, as I understand it, and again, don't quote me on it, I haven't read the book. I think what he took from it was the location, you know, the, the fact of having a dream house and dream garden on the doorstep of Auschwitz. And he took that family, but I think the rest of it, especially because he has taken pains to make a film that is really, I don't, I don't think anyone who watches this film is like, wow, what a compelling drama about the Hosses and their family life. You know, it's very much the minutiae of their domestic situation. And I think the, the Martin Amos book is like more of a yarn. Quite, quite a generous credit then perhaps. Well, maybe so. I don't know. <laughs> okay. uh, I, I started reading it. Mm. Um, I haven't finished it, unfortunately. Um, 
Yeah, there's. Uh, if you ever look for a Jonathan Glazer film to be true to the source material, you're going to be heavily disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Under the Skin, for example, is just completely far removed from the um, book it's based on. Um, with this, though, with when I was looking at Jonathan Glazer when he was doing his um, press previews, the idea of it, well, after he had read the book, was uh, purely based on geometry, based on this idea of the wall. And how do we, um, and that's basically the starting point of this film was looking at that wall and seeing how ultimate destruction can be so unnoticed and so uh, banal. Yeah, Um, he did take influence from the book. Um, One of the things I would quite like to mention, though, is about the wall is that we have these two stark images of, uh, especially in the coda, we've got Hedwig pruning the, redesigning the wall. She's going to put some, uh, I can't remember what she says she's putting on the walls. Um, Anyway, she's redecorating the walls of lilacs and so forth. And then the juxtaposing images, we have the cleaners cleaning the very walls that uh, are situated inside Auschwitz. I think it's just an absolutely brilliant, brilliant piece of cinema. Um, I think this needs to be taught. I, uh, I echo the point. I think um, it certainly needs to be taught in schools. And I'm very glad that uh, Glazer has made something that's a 12A so that it can be a bit more um, appreciated from uh, wider audiences instead of shutting off um, anyone from speaking. Yeah. Uh, have we got? I think we've got time for one last question. Yeah. I saw a hand as well. Where are you? (laughs) No? Well, uh, if that is it, um, Sophie, where can we find you? (laughs) On the streets. Um, No, I, I, I mean, this is not time for another question. I'll ask myself a question and then answering it. Okay. Uh, Yeah, like, I'm not really going to ask myself a question. I'm just going to speak. So, uh, you know, by design, this film is a film about today. Uh, this is something the filmmakers have explicitly said. That's not to diminish the fact that it's very specifically and very forensically a Holocaust film. But the filmmakers, they say it and they say it and they say it. It's about today. L- even the aesthetic of it, it's not dusty, it's not old, it's modern. And, you know, as they were making it, they were having conversations about selective empathy, um, you know, and like the lives we deem valuable and the lives we deem disposable. And I think this this is the thing, and this is the thing that means that it's both a film about history and a film about right now, and a film about the way that history isn't in the past, it's right now, and you know that phrase never again well it's happening again mm. and it, i think this film is is kind of imploring us to look on the other side of the wall um so yeah that's my closing thought that is a brilliant way to close off can i please have a big big round of applause for my favorite <laughs> journalist and film critic sophie monks kaufman oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and can i also Thank you. This is Joe's first Q&A and I think he smashed it. <laughs> <laughs> well Thank done, you Joe. very much. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye. Cool. Mm.